Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello Slackers, greetings and welcome to the Slacker Podcast. My name is Phil Taggart, I'm an Irish broadcaster. Uh, I've got two shows on BBC Radio 1 and you can probably find me in a park shouting at a load of pigeons telling them about a load of bands and chatting shit about musical conspiracy theories but on this podcast it is all about the early demos so in season one we've had people like manic street preachers uh, leon bridges wolf alice bastille and they came in and played the earliest demo that we could prize out of their hands. Uh, so far we're into season two and we have done Bring Me the Horizon, which was last week, Christine and the Queens, which was the week before, and Fatboy Slim, which was our first episode. We're now on episode four of season two and this episode falls to the one and only Scroobius Pip. You might know Scroobius Pip from his podcast, Distraction Pieces. You might know him from his own musical career or his musical career that he had with uh, Dan's Lasak. And, you know, at this point, I'm still waiting for him to come back and drop another album. I'm not sure if that's ever going to happen because he seems to be the ultimate renaissance man. If he's not acting in um, TV shows, he's uh, writing books, he's recording podcasts, he's just creating art all the time and he kind of just does what he wants and it always seems to work out for him i'm a massive fan of um, the distraction pieces podcast uh, i got into the sort of listening to podcasts a little bit late uh, a lot of people you know have been listening to podcasts for years but i've been a straight radio man and uh yeah i've been listening to distraction pieces podcast for a long time but i remember when his first uh single or the first single i heard of him anyway thou shall not kill came out and it absolutely blowing me away and i've been, been a big fan of his podcast wise and musical wise after so i had to get him on the podcast he's so interesting and he's just a good dude to chat to, about music to he also like myself runs a a small record label we're both completely diy so we sort of get in and nerd out a little bit about that as well 
And as usual, uh, the podcast is sponsored by two sponsors. Uh, the first of those sponsors is my book, Phil Taggart's Slacker Guide to the Music Industry. And it is coming out on May 16th and is available for pre-order now. I managed to get 70 incredible artists from George Ezra to Run the Jewels to Leon. No, Leon Bridges isn't in it. What am I doing? I'm getting confused. Uh, Slaves, Blossoms, Neo. Lil Sims, Charlie XEX, and like all the best managers and the best promoters, and basically all of the people that you need to hear from in the music industry if you're starting out and in a band. So if your friends in a band, or your cousins in a band, or your mum's in a band, or you're in a band, or you're just making music or a producer, or you want to get into the music industry, I've tried to make this like the ultimate ease in guide uh, to it because the music industry is so ridiculously complicated. And it's one of those things that if you don't get the basic steps right at the very beginning, you're never going to progress. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. You can order the book now from philtaggartslacker.com. There's an ebook up there um, and there is a print book up there and I'm self-publishing uh, it as well. Uh, like, we got offered a couple of uh, different publishers for the book and we just decided, you know what, let's do everything on our own terms. And that is very freeing in one way and absolutely flipping terrifying uh, in another. So if you are interested in the music industry, it is the book that you need to get. PhilTigerSlacker.com to buy that. Also this week we have partnered up with Beer52. They have given us a free case of beer to give to you. All you have to do is go to Beer52.com forward slash slacker. Get your free beers and all you have to do is just pay £5.95 for the packaging. Beer 52 is the world's most popular monthly craft beer club. And I was back last week in Belfast. I was at my friend's album launch. You should check out the album as well. It's an artist called Son of the Hound. And I got chatting to my friend Darren, who absolutely loves craft beers. And, you know, he's one of the people, he'll take pictures of those cans and put them up on Instagram. But he's mad into it. So he got them and he absolutely loves it. And he shared it around. I think a load of people in his office have now got a load of free beers because of this one. This month, Beer 52 and Ferment have teamed up with the Citizens of Everywhere Project to bring you 12 world-class collaborations showcasing the very best of UK and EU relations. Dark beers, light beers, they've got the lot. All you have to do, beer52.com forward slash slacker, eight beers and a snack. And you pay the $5.95 for the postage and packaging. Right, let's get into it. Episode 4 of season two of the Slacker podcast with Scroobius Pip in three, in two, in one. Mr. Scroobius Pip, hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Very good, thank you for coming on and doing this. It's my pleasure. I, I kind of was thinking about this on, on the train on the way up from Brighton earlier and I was like, you're, you're such a master of podcasts by this stage, this is kind of like... You're like the podcast Pele, and I'm like in the under 14s, just sort of learning, just it's, start starting into season two. It's such a weird one, man, because it's all <laughs> it's all different perceptions as well. Because I, when I had, or or when Adam Buxton first started doing his current podcast, I chatted to him a bit, and he hit me up to ask me for advice, and I was like, Adam Buxton yeah. did. I was like, you started like I was listening. to to his the Adam and Joe XFM podcast and the and the six music one yeah that, that that stuff was legendary I grew up but on then that it wasn't until he started talking it occurred to me that they just did a radio show uh -huh. that was then turned into a podcast 
And now podcasts have become their own thing. Yeah. It's weird. I was talking to Joe Cornish about it yesterday as well. I was recording a podcast with him. And it is weird because originally podcasts were kind of a spin-off highlights of a radio show, like most of them. Uh-huh. And now they've just become their completely own thing. And I love that they've got their own autonomy. It doesn't have to be associated with any other pre-existing product or property or whatever. Well, like I, I did season one and definitely had a lot of like growing pains through it because I've been doing traditional radio yeah. for like eight years. Yeah. And it's all I've ever known, really. Like a friend of mine would like message me going stop speaking like a radio host <laughs> stop moving it on so fast it's, it's great yeah. to have the mix though like uh, one of my favourite podcasts is Edith Bowman's soundtracking yeah, and the reason yeah. I love it is it sounds like a slick amazingly produced radio show and it's it's her years of experience but suddenly untethered yeah, you know, yeah. She's, she's just off the leash but still having that aesthetic and I think a lot of people just I mean mine is unedited it's, it's messy it's sloppy but it doesn't have to be that way. No, I think I, people I, get that idea of that all podcasts have to be this. Oh, are we recording? Which is, the, again, the typical start of any <laughs> podcast. It's like, I love it. Uh, rate and review this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, 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 oh. get, you get caught up in the tropes of it, don't you? Mate, you really do. Um, we, we, rate and review is basically the radio version of the time check. It's basically yeah. like, a, it's 12 minutes past 10 here on uh, a win. Completely. <laughs> I genuinely, at the end of one of my podcasts about six months ago, I said, if you can um, like, subscribe, rate and review and all that. And then I ended and I was like, do you know what? No one's ever actually told me what that does. I've just heard it on other podcasts. That's the only reason I say it. I say it really makes a difference. It's, it helps us with the charts and exposures. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if it does. I've this just could, heard it on podcasts. This could be Apple propaganda. Yeah. They've, they've set it out into the world. Yeah. Just, yeah. just so everybody goes and downloads it from it. But as, as like magnificent as your podcasts have uh, have been and continue to be, like I, I'm a huge fan. And I've been listening for a long time. But we're kind of here to talk about the music. Yes, indeed. I'd like to say where it all started, but it's hard to figure out where what where anything starts with you because you do so many different things. It's all you, like your your timeline's kind of like Star Wars. It's it's really a confusing one. And the way I always describe it is it's always a case of when you at what station you boarded the train. Um because <laughs> I have loads of people who now I'm doing acting are like when are you going to go back to music? Like, you're a musician. And they don't know that before I was doing music, I was making short films with my mates. Acting and film has always been something I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And then the podcasting and broadcasting was something I never wanted to do. And it came out of nowhere. I was kind of, I had Eddie Tempermoyce twist my arm to start an XFM show. And I loved it. So it's that weird, it's kind of always doing all these different things, but people will always identify you as one rather than the other. Well, that's the one thing that we've got in common then. Is we, like I set out to be in a historically seminal uh, indie rock band yeah. and then yeah. end, ended up on Radio 1 playing yeah. seminal indie rock bands. Yeah, and it's a good place to, to end up, right? It's not but too it's bad. It's still yeah. not a defining thing. It's, it won't... How... It sounds obvious, but how other people see you isn't going to be how you see yourself. Oh, God, yeah, and absolutely. The example I always give, I, I had a song that was all about... If you see... And the easiest example I could give was a goth kid. Because it's such an, an obvious extreme look. It's like you can instantly imagine that in your head. When you see this makeup covered, dyed hair goth kid walking along, yeah. what their parents see when they see them is completely different. They will still see their little kid, their baby, without any piercings, without anything <laughs> I like that. And I think it's a similar thing. I remember on... him before he burnt ancient literature. Yeah, ex- yeah. exactly. But I, I genuinely think that's the same with kind of... You, or you forget that when you become in the public eye, people 
have their own snapshots of you, and you're like, I know who I am. I know the complete me. But yeah, yeah that they see always... they, they just see the thumbnail, really, don't yeah. they? And that's fine as well because yeah. there's a lot of great people to have thumbnails of. You can't have a full <laughs> a full portrait of everyone. That'd be there'd be no room. I'm gonna play. Um, First, first ever demo, yes. um, and we're gonna play the song "Wanderers Lost." I'm gonna blast you a little bit of it, and then we can talk about it. It's a long intro, right? I mean, I I do a chill show on Radio 1. Like, okay, this is the sort of stuff that I, like, I want to use this as a bed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if I'm ever going to start rapping at this stage. <laughs> it's, like, it's almost like, you know, the, the scene in any sort of band narrative where the band starts and they're too nervous to go out so he misses his first cue and his second cue and his third cue comes out and smashes it because I swear you look familiar I stand scratching my head to make my thoughts a bit clearer and you look at me like I'm a bad news dealer but maybe you just know that I'm a soul revealer yeah but maybe I'm wrong so I just keep on walking as I start to walk I hear that people start to be talking about the boy with the distant stare and the walkman and the book held tight in his hands he keeps his thoughts in as I walk the talk, it fades into the distance And I start to ponder the true meaning of existence And once theorised the X and Y of existence Are the feelings that you feel, levels of which do you feel With this in mind, I had to put pen to paper But even with this outlet, my mind began to waver I looked up to find a muse my mind could use A distraction from this sedulous mind abuse Sedulous mind abuse, I love it Man, I've always been way too highbrow, haven't I? <laughs> Chris is into it. Yeah. So that she stood my inappropriate object of desire. Just another inanimate object for me to cast into the mind. I don't know yet. But her visuals got me kinda transfixed. I look away, I'm drifting back to her lips. It's time the leaves leave I did. I had to get the hell out there before I scared this bright-eyed queen with my matchman power. So I got home and plugged the phone and sat alone with my mind delight. Had the sweetest night sleeping her eyes at night. Yeah, I see this way I didn't ruin the illusion. When pursuing the muse, the chances are that you'll lose them. But even if you don't, I never live up to your expectation. Rather keep them in my dreams and draw my inspiration. But it's getting kinda crowded up there. And the boundaries of my mind I think are starting to tear. As a stronger reality start overtaking the meek, I'm like, did I even leave my house this week? listening to that immediately what is the first emotion that comes to you I'm just cringing I hate listening to <laughs> any of my old stuff um, 
it's kind of I think it's a good thing. I think any artist should be aiming to constantly improve their game, their flow, their lyrics, their delivery, everything. And that should mean that you're kind of cringing a little bit when you yeah. hear your early stuff because it's like, oh, is that how I sounded? Is that, yeah. You know, sometimes that when you hear somebody's early stuff, you, you cringe for them. Yeah, yeah. But I don't, I don't get that with that. Like immediately, that that feels quality to me, and it feels like um, the the flow that you've got, and even like the, the songwriting and stuff. Yeah. It, like it, it feels like it's off a standard already. It doesn't feel like a growing pain. It was a really interesting one with because it, it was only something I realised in in recent years in fact it was when I I was doing something on Six Music and Matt Everett who, who produces and does the news on there and stuff like that he had a photo of my first ever live performance because I started off just performing outside other people's gigs and the first one I went to was DJ Shadow was, was doing an album playback so I turned up at the label I knew there'd be cues and I performed outside and it wasn't until we were talking about that that I realised I'd recorded my album, quit my job, and decided I was going to do music <laughs> yeah. before I'd ever performed in front of anyone, like ever. No one had heard any of this out loud. So I think it's because of that I'd really, I'd crafted overall. I'd really worked on it to make sure I'm proud of this. You'd done the 10,000 hours that you need to do, but you've done them in your head before yeah, you'd even started. Privately, exactly that. And that was kind of an interesting realisation. It sounds bold and brave. I'd say it's more ignorant and just didn't think <laughs> about it and risky. But um, There's something to be said, though, about just throwing yourself in yeah. to the belly of the beast and, and learning to swim while you can. Completely. I always remember hearing a quote that said, if you've got something to fall back on, you're more likely to fall back or you're going to fall back. And, and that was it. I was working in retail at the time um, in HMV. Uh, in fact... Yesterday, as we record this, the HMV I worked in, HMV Lakeside, all the staff turned up in the morning and were told that they no longer have a job and were sent home. Told on the day, just the stores, the stores closed. It's done it was now. closed on that it's day as well. Now. Yeah, it's closed on that day. They're done, which is heartbreaking. Again, you can argue all the time about the difference of retail and how it's all going, but that was just harsh to hear. Kind of again, all I'd, it's a bit I'd, of your history as well. Yeah, like, as, as, like I mean, it's awful for the people that have lost their jobs, and I mean, yeah. it, HMV has kind of been suffering for quite a long time, and yeah. just music shops in general have. Yeah, they? it feels like a slow death, but then a really quick execution. <laughs> like, like again, everything I was hearing of HMV closing down, I was like, it's a shame because I worked there for years. I loved it. I wrote that demo, recorded that while I was working in HMV. I would have written it. Um, a lot of it I would have written on the tills, on the back of till receipts. I wrote I a lot used to of my do that. I used to do that with comedy sketches back yeah. in the day. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that was kind of important to me. But I could also see it's kind of a dead setup, you know, m m music and DVDs in general. It's all moving online or moving to non-physical. Um, but that doesn't make it any, any less sad when you hear of people turning no. up to their job. And Absolutely. Being told, oh, by the way, you're done now. Did it did it make you a better artist? Did, like working in a record shop, being in that sort of environment where you could talk about records to people and you could sort of pick them up maybe a little bit cheaper than <sighs> otherwise. A hundred percent. It made me a better artist and a better a music fan because I went in there. And again, you got to remember that this is a time before music online as such. This is two thousand one to say two thousand five, early two thousand six maybe, and it meant that an HMV at that point particularly had staff who were knowledgeable about the music. So the guy that ran the ran the classical and jazz section, Ross Lawson, who's one of the guys who was turned up to work yesterday, been working there for 10, 15 years, turned up yesterday and was told he's not got a job anymore. 
But I could go to him and say, you know what, I've never got into jazz. Can you recommend some stuff? And he'd play me some mind-blowing jazz or classical. Mm. A lot of the stuff on my on my debut record, No Commercial Breaks, the original beats I made were all samples from HMV's own label classical <laughs> section, which was like a quid a CD. And yeah. I'd just go on there and I'd make the beats m- m- myself with a CD player that had a loop function so this is and a little mixing desk. Quite like Q-Tip used to do with yeah. um, Tribe Called Quest, that sample culture. Yeah, completely. It was exactly that. And then again, just to really drill home the importance of HMV in my career, when we recorded No Commercial Breaks, I could afford th- three days in the studio. I got Ross from the classic jazz section <laughs> and i got alan yeah from uh from he did a rock and pop i think and some games and they came into the studio with me and we re-recorded everything changing it slightly so we didn't have to and, and were they were they professionals at this they, like had they did they know how to use studios or did you just like well, draft in anybody you knew the, the guy who ran the studio had a studio in his back garden he mainly did a cd duplication company but he had a studio and was like a home tech kind of thing yeah R- ross is a multi-instrumentalist he could play guitar bass saxophone piano so and and alan was just an amazing dr- drummer so everything on that first album b- b- bar a couple of tracks i kind of de- demoed up myself a couple i just made beatboxing into a loop pedal and stuff like that and we tried it in the studio but the cleanness killed the energy of yeah, it. yeah yeah so i went home and recorded it in my mum's toilet and, <laughs> and where i'd done them originally but yeah 90 percent of the tracks were all recorded in three days by two mates that i'd met i wouldn't have met if i hadn't worked in hmv and they were still working there and we were all yeah, in on that. So it shows how what, important that was. What were the records that got you to work in a music shop? Because obviously it's not it's not one of those jobs where you just go, oh, do you know what? I just need need a bit of pocket money. Yeah. Like when I was a kid growing up in Oma in Northern Ireland, like there was a small record shop that I I worked. I said I worked at, but I didn't because I didn't get paid to work yeah. there. And yeah, I just yeah, hung yeah. out there. Yeah. And I basically just used to sit there when he would go get his lunch, and I just yeah. like maybe left the odd free CD every once in a while. I don't think he knew that, actually. That's called theft. Uh, (laughs) But, like, you obviously need to be into music as a kid to be to want to get there. So, like, what were the sort of seminal records around your house when you were wee? Just mentioning on that that there, I just have to touch upon, because a mate of mine was explaining the reason HMV do that. Let go. I'm not going to only just keep banging on about HMV people (laughs) being sacked, but the reason they do that, you turn up and you've been told you've not got a job and sent home, is to stop people stealing out of anger. Yeah, so of if you've been told you're going at the end of the week, you're going to rob. And my response was genuine. was like, yo, I stole loads of shit and I wasn't angry at all. <laughs> I, I was happy, but I was just poor. So yeah, I kind exactly. of sneak a bit here in it. And particularly when you know, like, particularly with the own brand stuff, like when you know the dealer price is like 30p or something, you're like, uh, I'll write that off. Let's say that didn't... You're like, whose pocket am I really taking this yeah, out of? exactly, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so... A music growing up again. It depends how far you you, you want to go back. My my parents weren't that musical, I don't think. But my older brother was, and the first things I got into were the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, all that kind of era of. You always end up coming rock. back to that, don't you? Yeah. Like the, the the stuff that you like, say the things like Fleetwood Mac and Queen and things like that that I would have bypassed from about eighteen. Yeah, till about maybe about a year ago, the 100%. stuff that, stuff that like my mum would have played in the car. Now I'm coming back to a little bit older and going, oh god, the production and that's great. I'm going to start listening to Jimi Hendrix again, you know, mate. Um, Deacon Blue 
is one of one for me <laughs> yeah. on that. My mum used to listen to Deacon Blue on holidays, yeah. and I'd be like, oh, I'm not into this at all. Yeah, turn that up. Now, a couple of their songs are just absolute dignity is one of the most best <laughs> the best written pop songs ever it's beautiful but um yeah so it was into that kind of stuff but then i'd say the real ignition of music like meaning the world to me and being one of the kids at school who was all about music it was that new wave of of punk it was green day offspring rancid all these bands that then became pop punk or bracketed under pop punk but i think there's such a variation within it. It's kind of hard to just say pop punk. But yeah, yeah. there's so many, so many different branches. Like the Dookie yeah. is 25 this year. Yeah, and that was the the album that that started it all off for me. And it's a weird one because that's another one where Green Day. I've gone on and off over the years, and they've gone out of credibility for my age bracket. But I can't think of a record that's had a bigger impact on me than Dookie because that also made me go back and buy. Kaplunk and Thousand and Thirty Nine Smooth Out Slappy Hour. So that got me into that independent records, independent l- labels, hunting out records that I couldn't just find in my local. And you store. probably go tr- back through that through the influences off Green Day. So then you probably had stiff little fingers yeah. and and shit like that. Completely, it got me. It made me delve. That was probably the route I got into the Pistols and the Clash and and m- Minor Threat. Definitely, I might have had the Pistols and Clash earlier, but the, definitely your Minor Threats and later down the line Leatherface and just yeah all these influential bands and then going off as I said Rancid is the other one that really it was Green Day Offspring and Rancid and Rancid was the one that felt looking back now it's the one that I get most angry it gets bracketed under the pop punk or that new era because they I mean Joe Strummer ended up signing to Tim Armstrong from Rancid's label that's how credible a sound they were, and it wasn't just this this rip off thing. Yeah. So yeah, I like kind of. It was the, the the clash for me. I think we're like are still. If somebody would say to you, go, what what is your favorite like your favorite band? Yeah. I, I like I still to this day cannot beat the clash. Yeah, just because yeah. they t- yeah. they touched on so many different genres of music. Hundred percent, and, and they just... brought they brought black music into what was a predominantly white uh, based. Music with punk music, do you know? Yeah, they, they were bringing in their um, experiences in sort of like reggae and ska and and like Completely. early rock and roll and stuff yeah. like that. I love that. Hundred percent. I had I had Don Letts on my podcast, and it was amazing to talk to Don because Don is known as the guy he, he was, was playing there. reggae at the punk gigs, mm. and I kind of put it to him that he brought reggae to 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 the the British, and he kind of corrected me. He paused me and said. I need to to put a kind of asterisk there. Like, <laughs> he might get in a lot of trouble for this. He, no, he was like, I brought reggae to the British people who didn't live next door to black people. Yeah. And it was beautiful yeah. because it was only in South London that time. If you lived next door to Jamaicans and any of this, you would hear it. And it was, obviously, they were times of racial tension, but they were also times of groundbreaking of racial unity and, and, and culture clashes and culture crossing. And it was a point where... Like my dad or my family all from South London and my dad, my granddad worked or yeah, worked in a pickle factory and their Christmas dues, 80% of the staff were all Jamaican families mm-hmm. and they were just this amazing cr- crossing of cultures. In a time in history, you look back and you think of skinheads and, and riots and, and clashes, but it was also, there was some great coming together there and some great 
a unity. And we, and, and we got some incredible music out of it as well. 100% mind-blowing. Speaking more of like a personal culture clash, I, I've always had in my head the idea of, and I, this is like obviously the media putting this in my head, but like a, the idea of like people in Essex, they, they like good commercial music. It doesn't really matter what it is. They'll yeah. have the nice, nice shirt on, but yeah. the whole way to the top, a nice pair of loafers on and they'll be out dancing. But on the other side, you've got, you who grew up in Essex yeah. um, into punk music and yeah. I, I like the idea of that friction this is what's painted in my head in a very sort of primary colour way but yeah. like how true is that or how false it's, is it's, it? It's, it exists it's a weird one I've, I have I don't rant too much about The Only Way is Essex because that is an Essex that exists it's just not the Essex I've ever known Yeah. in the in the poorer parts of Essex there is a mixture of stuff that people do but still it's the majority are your, your whatever is hot at that time garage r&b or whatever else that's uh-huh. that's blown up but we were lucky because we've got i think it's the oldest alternative venue in the country so it might be the oldest cl- club in the country in general it was, Is that was the one covered on the one show in yeah in, in rayleigh the pink Tooth really yeah, yeah um and my mate Stu, who i do my club night with and yeah he runs that he's run that for years There's- and there's it's a classic. friend of mine, Tommy, who makes all of the music videos for my record label. Who lives in Rayleigh. Yeah. Um, and I, Rat Boy, he, I did his first single. He's from Chelmsford, yeah. and he texts me every once in a while. I go, come down to Rayleigh. We'll go to the Pink Toothbrush. Apparently, <laughs> it's, it's legendary. It's genuinely iconic, and it is just an alternative club. But you've got to realise how important that is in an area that isn't necessarily embracing of change and difference and yeah. stuff like that. And again, let's be frank: the part of Essex I live in. Um, is has been a stronghold for UKIP and BMP. When when um, who was it? Who was before Nigel Farage? N- Nick Griffin. When Nick Gr- Griffin had had some racist thing and been chased out of town, he disappeared for a week. The place he re- he resurfaced was Tilbury, which is two minutes up the road from me. So it's that kind of area. There's a lot of, w- of white people. A lot of poor people who are confused and easily led by these stupid myths of immigrants and all this kind of thing. But it also means that if you're a punk kid, if you've got long hair, if you've got colourful hair, if you're anything alternative, it's not the easiest place to live. So a place like the Pink Toothbrush was really important because it was somewhere that you could all go and all be different. Yeah, there's, there's, feel safe. Like when when we used to skate when we were teenagers, we used to get yeah. quite a lot of abuse, but there was always strength in numbers. Yeah, yeah. So completely. if you were getting like the the, the sort of the state kids were coming after you, yeah, they'd be chasing you down the road, and then they'd turn the corner and there'd be like another ten guys with skateboards, and they'd be like, "All right, we're right, we're we'll going to scurry back. And it's all fine." Again, it's another <laughs> problem with Essex is it's quite spread out, so it's hard to get those communities or anything. So mm. Rayleigh the the pink toothbrush, it's a 30, 40 minute cab journey for me, but I'd make that week in, week out because it was that place. This that was our local party. place. It was where we needed to be to go and, and unify. And again, you can go back there now. I mock Stu all the time because Stu, I do my club night, we are lizards are with as well. And he's also, he's done the Pod Bible magazine with me. He's got a podcast on my network, Hardcore List, and he's a good mate. I mock him constantly because at the pink toothbrush, if I was to go now, I reckon eighty to ninety percent of the songs I'd hear would be the same ones I heard when I was going in two thousand. Can I can I guess what they would be? Hit some because like I, I know I know clubs like that back home. Yeah, um, you would probably hear 
Motorhead, Ace of Spades. Yep, 100%. You would probably hear Jimmy Eat World's yep. um, The Middle. Yeah, yeah. You'd probably hear, ah, uh, fuck, um, uh, White Stripes. There'd be lots of White Stripes yep. in there. And, yep. and probably like Last Night by the Strokes. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> and it was, again, it's it's those clubs. You, you're also going to get a bit of your new metal thrown in there. You're going to go a bit indie heavy. You're going to go a bit, there'll always be some kind of prodigy. Ch- yeah, 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 normally yeah. a prodigy like medley a mega mix of like <laughs> four or five prodigy songs and and it's brilliant for that it's beautiful because you there's know there's a familiarity in that that's quite nice I had a, a radio sh- sh- show on XFM for a year and it's that year is the most up to date on music I've ever been because I was all <laughs> about finding new stuff and stuff that wasn't going to get played anywhere else because there's a lot of particularly I mean even X and 6 and all of that amazing for new indie for new rock no one was that great for new hip hop. You know, you had a, a one extra, but that was normally grime and UK stuff. There wasn't a lot for kind of alternative American hip hop. So I gave tons of tracks or tons of artists their first ever UK airplay, things like that. Since then, I listen to probably one or two new records a year. And I'm just, that, it's, I don't, I, don't, I ain't feeling the digging. Yeah. Um, I, I want to get to the record label stuff now because, yes. like, uh, I, I want to go back and talk about the first album, but we're here now. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, well, you set up the record label to release your first record. And yeah. from, from memory, you printed a thousand copies yep. of the, the debut album. Yeah, of No Commercial Breaks. I think that's a, that's a great name for an album that's coming out on your yeah. own label, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, again, it was the idea. But again, the beauty is it's highlighting that, you know, there's levels to this game. And I, I I do it all the time in stuff now. There's so much that you can give the perception of it being more than it is. I set up my label. That means I had some CDs made. <laughs> and it's weird. I've got a tattoo on my leg, and it's a it's a gun on this side. It's a it's a pistol. Yeah. And I got it as because I love the the history of commemorative pistols to com- commemorate things. And on this one, it's all this. It's the size of my calf, and it says. SDR 11, because that's when I released um, Distraction Pieces, the album, on my label. On this side, I've got a mini version that <laughs> says SDR 06 on it, because that's when I released No Commercial Breaks on my label. Yeah. I didn't have barcodes. I put a catalogue number on it. It's not registered anywhere. <laughs> I just wanted it to look professional. So it was all this kind of faking it of, of professionalism that it's got a catalogue number, it's got a track listing, it looks legit. But it's funny you should mention that. I just bought a bar- barcode for this book that I'm self-publishing Amazing, and yeah. I have no idea where to put it or what to fucking yeah. do with it. It's mad, isn't it? It wasn't, I said it wasn't until I did my second solo record in 2011 that I've learned about barcodes, catalogue numbers, registering, MCPS, PRS, all of these things. That first one was a labelling in name only. But I'd felt it was enough that as I was getting a tattoo to commemorate launching my label. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I had to get one to commemorate the kind of launching my label. <laughs> like when I thought I'd launched a label, yeah. it was purely just blag. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think you kind of need to blag it into existence sometimes, don't you? Like, 100%. Especially with like labels like that. And putting out your own records you learn so much about it and you also yeah, have you to like but like obviously you did enough on the first one creatively to make you want to do a second one where you enjoyed it enough yeah at what point did things like start to sort of like snowball like people start to get you get a little bit of notoriety a little bit of radio play was it's, it with your solo stuff or was it when Dan Lasak and your it's, stuff it's annoyingly it was annoyingly quick for me like for anyone listening who's in bands that <laughs> right. toil and trouble, because it's another one where I'm like, this music industry is easy, isn't it? So yeah. I quit my job in HMV and I just I had my solo record made. And my plan, again, it's because of the cringing of listening now. I was cringing listening then. It was weird. It's weird hearing your own voice on a record and things yeah. like that. So the thing I did was I did a, th- a thing called the Relying on the Kindness of Strangers tour. And I sent a load of flyers out to mates who were at uni or other HMVs to hand out. And and, and they all just said, look, I'm going to be touring the country. If you've got a venue, if you've got a night that you can put me on, I'll come and play. Um, And I spent a few months living in my 1987 Toyota Space Cruiser touring the country and I love how specific you are on that yeah. it's like, like oh, it's beautiful it had a moonroof yeah that sounds it's not a sunroof it had you know, a moonroof you know when Alan Partridge always says the Rover 405 yes, exactly <laughs> 100% Partridge um, but yes so I did that but I purposely knocked about in the north first because I couldn't bear the idea of performing in front of my mates and again it's the opposite of what a lot of people do they do the local band thing and then they get a distorted perception of how successful they are because nobody's actually scared or like brave enough to go your shit they've got their mates and again i used to see it with so many local bands in essex oh we've got a big london gig are we going to bring all our fans up so we'll just play local then yeah if all you're doing is bringing all your mates uh why are you going into london to do it that only ever works when they've got the record and somebody from a record label there because i've seen that happen before where a band was playing and they bust a load of people down from yeah. Manchester, and the record label signed them on the spot because they couldn't believe the reaction, even though exactly. it was all their mates. But that's the thing: is <laughs> stories like that start to do the rounds, and then everyone assumes any gig in London is full of record label execs. It's yeah, like, yeah, it's not. But yes, and so I did a lot in the north, and it was it was exactly as you said: the fake it into existence kind of thing. That I was there with. I'd learned all my stuff, so I'd felt confident in performing it, it live and feeling it was going to be a good sh- show. Like, for indoors gigs, I had a little s- slide machine that I had slides f- for each song, and I'd 
you know, control it all myself. Um, and for outdoors gigs, I had a, a, a ghetto blaster that had a tape of of of, of some some instrumentals. This is very like nineteen eighty eight, isn't 100%. it? Hundred yeah. percent. And also, the thing I did the most was I had. I always say it's a loop pedal. It wasn't even a loop pedal. It was a digital delay. So it had a maximum of 30 seconds of looping, I think. Maybe less. It might have been 10 seconds. I'd beatbox and loop it, and then I'd rap over the top. But I knew all my stuff. I practiced on my live performance. I always wore a suit and a trucker hat and had a big beard, and I had a CD made. So it looked like... You just he must be together. big down south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He must be big down south <laughs> that he's playing up here and he's got an album, he's got all of this. So I genuinely think that is what kind of fast-tracked it all for me, is there was an assumption I'm already established and these were like on my first ever gigs. And by the time I went back south, I'd built up a MySpace following. I'd built up all these things. So And you were confident thinking, doing what you were doing as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so a- it was completely the faking it until it sounds like, faking it into reality. It sounds like the musical equivalent of... Um, those like snake oil salesmen that go from town yeah, to town. Yeah, they're going, "Hi, how are you?" It but, was hundred percent. But you're but you're building it up. But like that's such a, a sort of unique way of doing it now because everybody sticks out as much music as they possibly can. Yeah, and building it live actually is probably the best way to do anything and sustain a career. It, that's the key there, the sustaining a career, and it's it's key that when I stopped doing music five years ago, it was off the back of the biggest tour, the biggest turnouts or whatever had and generally if your first album blows up there's a good chance there's going to be a decline for the the second and Mm -hmm. third and things like because you have that unless you're plugged into a major label and it's yeah systems go even then it's rare you'll get to do the first album's normally lightning in a bottle and it's very hard to replicate yeah but i do think i think it's because so on that relying on the kindness of strangers tour one of the people i'd worked with in hmv was with dan lasak so I'd sent some out to him and he booked me to come and do a gig at a night he was doing. And when he performed, he'd remixed a few of my tracks and they sounded amazing. Mm-hmm. So we put them on MySpace and then we said, oh, we should record a track together. And we recorded Thou Shall Always Kill. Um, and then John Kennedy played it, Rob Bank played it on Radio 1. Zane Lowe made it his biggest, his hottest record in the world. And that was that. We I mean, were off I, to the races. I pretty much remember that song coming out because yeah. it was plastered everywhere. Like it, it, it was one of the first in my in in sort of my memory. It was one of the first viral tracks to be shared around. Yeah, it went nuts. Uh, like it got like people were sending like emailing me like yeah. links to it, going, "Oh, you know, like you love all those bands. Yeah. Listen to this." Yeah, and yeah. I, and the first, I think, the first time I heard um, "They Shall Always Kill," I was like. Fuck, does he think he is? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, when I listened to it again, I was like, "No, hold on, I've got this the wrong way around." Yeah, this is punk rock. Yeah, and I was like, "Going, no, Block Party are are a great band. No, they're yeah. not just a band." And then you're like, "No, hold on." I was re- really conflicted for yeah. a while, and then I was like, "No, this is punk rock. I, I like this." Yeah, it, and it was great how that went because around that time or just after, I was asked by tons of different labels or music week type thing is to come and speak at events and stuff like that. I was like, I've got nothing to tell you, man. Like, when we recorded a three and a half minute list poem uh-huh. and over an electro beat with no chorus, it's got the just a band bit, but there's no repeated chorus, no traditional song structure. We didn't expect that to be a pop hit and get in the charts. It's like no one could have predicted that. So I can't go to an event and say, here's how you make a hit. Yeah. Because we was- just made the song that we thought 
was this like was this like Dylan when Dylan started out and uh, everybody was like the voice of a generation. Yeah. Were, were you getting any of that sort of plaudits and praise? Mate, I was getting tons of that and tons of kind of. It was tough as well because all of that stuff, like my solo stuff, had been doing all right, but it was me and Dan Lasak paired that was was hitting and clicking. Yeah. Yeah. At least initially, a lot of the reaction was to me rather than to me and Dan. Yeah. And that was that was a tough thing because we were Dan Lasak versus Scroobius Pip. It wasn't that I'm Scroobius Pip, also here's a That's producer. always going to be the way when you've got the microphone. Whoever's yeah. got the microphone is the front person, Com- normally, you know what I mean? Completely. And I think that, I mean, it, yeah. Did it, it piss Dan off? I think it did a bit, yeah. I think when we made our second record... I don't think I've I've ever said this to Dan, but when we made our second record, I didn't feel particularly like Dan Lasak was much of a Scroobius Pip fan, but I was still very much a Dan Lasak fan. But I think that was it. I think that was because of a lot of that. Because on that album, you've got tracks like A Letter from God to Man, which Dan's production on that is mind blowing, and that. But it happens that it's over one of the best bits of, l- of lyric writing I've ever done. Uh-huh. So all the attention is on this amazing, these amazing vocals. It's like they would be nothing without that building beat, the Radiohead sample. We were one of the first acts, I believe, to ever get clearance to sample Radiohead. How did you manage to do that? Did you like email Tom York and then just he just comes back? Going, yep, it was, cool. it was crazy last minute, you know, because the album was almost good to go and we hadn't had clearance and we tried to hustle for it. It didn't we, seem to stop you in the first two records. No, no, exactly. But it was, yeah, it, but it was, um, this was now, it felt like a bigger thing. Are, are we had attention so we can get yeah. in trouble. And again, we don't want to piss off Radiohead. It's Radiohead. And the, Dan made a version of that track that didn't have the sample. Yeah. And I kind of said to him, I was like, look, if we can't get clearance, I'd rather we just don't release that. Like, that track isn't on the album. It's only a live song. Because that sample and the way he made that beat was so key to it. The everything is broken is so key to Letter from God to Man. Mm -hmm. For God's response to what man has done to Earth. It felt weird to do a version without. And honestly, weeks before we were going to press, Radiohead were in on John Kennedy's show on XFM. And John... Played it to him in in an interval, I think, or before they went live, and said, "Look, have you heard this? It's great, and it'd be good." And it was a few days after that that we got word back that it had been it had been cleared. So that's incredible. Like John Kennedy has a lot to answer for when it comes to your career, doesn't he? It so does. And, and he's I love been that thanked, man. He's been thanked in every record we put out because genuinely, him when that, love that it when a champion probably gets behind a band. Yeah, we I sent. Uh, we sent one burnt CD, not promos sent out everywhere. We sent one to John Kennedy and he played it the night he received it. Um, and if he hadn't, who knows if we would have ever got anywhere. And then, and then had the letter from God to Man thing. I always say John Kennedy and Rob the Bank are the two because Rob was the first to play it on Radio 1 and obviously we signed to, to his label Sunday Best and all that. And then Zane Lowe as well was a real champion for us because he was the master of just the left field. Yeah, yeah. It it was weird because when we started to get the daytime radio one play, it's that weird thing because as soon as you're in the industry, you're like, that's the goal, Uh daytime radio one. And then we started to get it and we're like, man, are we ruining people's day? (laughs) (laughs) Because we're being played alongside Girls Aloud and, and the Sugar Babes and... 
they're great bands. I genuinely enjoy but a lot I, of their I songs. I quite but like the idea of that, though. Completely. But a lot of people listening won't. <laughs> so it's, it's one of them that we felt it was more important to get played in the right place than in the biggest place. Yeah, and Zane yeah, yeah. was the biggest right place. Zane had that audience who w- 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 wanted to hear new stuff, but it was still a huge audience. So Well, that's 7pm start now that Annie Mac does this. It's, it's yeah. got, you get the listeners from like drive time, so you've still got a couple of million people there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And they're sort of drifts into like you know the the left and the new yeah, and I always quite like that so did you get like all of the the major labels and the publishers and did they take you out to dinner and did they send limousines to your house did, oh, they, did oh, they get ta- uh, lyrics tattooed on their forehead I mean they were tr- troublingly nice to us so we went and met all the majors on the on the label front and Sony and Universal on the publishing front and a, f- a few other big ones and they were kind of it was Sony and Universal I think and maybe Warners who were the last three that were kind of in a bit of a bidding war and then the main guy at Sony left which took the steam out of the bidding this, war this is a very familiar situation yeah. for a lot of bands who've was, been in that it was such a weird one it was like yeah. it was going to be this big thing and then it dropped off but with the major l- labels it was it was heartbreaking for the 13-year-old punk me. Yeah. Because we went and met the majors with a frown on our faces, like they're going to be so commercial and nonsense. And we went we went and met the indies with hope in our hearts. <laughs> some of the major labels yeah. got what we were doing more than some of the indies. Oh, that's just not how you play it out in your it's head, is it? It's not what we wanted. We wanted it to be a conflict of, well, they're offering tons of money, but this, that, and we could do yeah. this. Like, oh, they're offering tons of money, and they get it. This isn't Whereas, fair. They're like, not dicks. <laughs> a, a, one of the indies that we were excited about was like, well, what we see is we're going to make you the next Kano. And I rate Kano yeah, hugely. Yeah, oh, big time. But I'm, I ain't Kano. And what our sound at that time in particular, it wasn't that. Our sound got dirtier and darker after my solo record, but it wasn't that dirty and dark. So it's kind of, it felt like they just did, didn't get what, what, what we were doing. So it was... It was a really weird one, but the thing that happened was we realised that because Rob the Bank had been leading us from day one, he was the person that we were asking for advice on, is this label good? Is this deal good? Like, what the hell is a 360 deal? Like, they were brand new. <laughs> they were just starting to come out of that yeah, time. Yeah, don't and we managed, do it. And we managed to avoid it. But yeah, we realised that the person we kept going to for advice was Rob the Bank, and he's got a label. And it might have been a small <laughs> indie, but we kind of said to him, like, do you, are you interested? And they were like, yeah, like <laughs> Warners and Sony and Universal are trying to sign you. Yeah, we're interested. But, and... but when an independent like that, like, like speaking from my own label or something, if I know that the majors are in, I'll probably not even send an email because yeah. I just know there's no point because we've got yeah. flip all money. And that was it. So we we kind of hit them up. And it was the first time Sunday Best had signed an act, I think. I think they'd done a lot of remixes and compilations and stuff at that point, but but they'd never gone to actual, right, we're going to have an act and try and do music videos and albums and get them in the charts rather than just we're doing a 12 or a 7 or whatever else. Yeah. And, yeah, we kind of liked them. And the money wasn't as good, but we felt it was the right choice for, as you said earlier, for longevity. Yeah. We wanted to sign a three-album deal and release three albums. And a lot of people... So we came up, I was gigging solo, and then me and Dan were gigging a lot with... Kate Nash, a Jack Pagnate, Adele. Um, what a time for music. Yeah, it was amazing. We had Kate Nash on the, the season one of this podcast. Yeah. What a great person. Like. Amazing. And, and and Paloma Faith as well, a, a little bit after. And 
This is a very like enemy clique, isn't yeah. it? From like 2008. Completely. All yeah. of us getting accused of having Mockney accents because of Lily Allen. <laughs> and I had to explain, this is just how Essex people sound. It's not Mockney, it's just Essex. It's like not quite Cockney. But um, Sure, I'm not even Irish. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was that weird thing because in hindsight, you can never know what would have been. But I do know that Kate Nash smashed it and then the pressures of a major label tore that girl apart unfairly and unreasonably. And that yeah. was, I've even though I, like, I had her on, on the podcast about a year ago, and it's the first time we'd seen each other in five or six years, but in all that time, I would consider Kate a dear friend because I loved her music. Mm-hmm. I loved gigging with her and her whole crew. Um, Jay and all, the, all that posse were amazing. And that was heartbreaking to see because that was an 18-year-old girl who was churning out number ones that she was writing herself and performing herself, and then she has a number f- five or something, and they're like, well, this isn't good enough. It's like, are you kidding me? That's such it's a still joke. still in the top ten, and you're getting <laughs> stick and getting... It's seen as... You're making an 18-year-old girl see it as a, f- a f- failure to have a top ten But that's, that's why the, those... Um ideas of the, the major record companies are there yeah because they do that yeah like it, yeah. It, it's not uh they're not particularly known for just good faith do you know what that I mean? was it if like, it's if it's bottom line not working for them then it's off yeah and 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 we had a meeting with the the, the label the major that we were closest to signing with who was throwing a lot of money about the day after our meeting where he was like loving your music it it made us uncomfortable that it, it, it just got back from a big meeting with Linkin Park and was telling us that they're the best band in the world and I was never into Linkin Park yeah, I yeah. thought I know I'm a white rapper but that felt like really white rap to me you know <laughs> it felt like a white rapper who's not heard rap you know what I mean so again I know I'm coming out you've heard my spoken word and <laughs> incredulous mind abuse and so yeah. shit like that it's as white as it can come but it felt it didn't feel right to me and then that night I got home, and it's the first time we'd met this guy, and he was the head of the, the label at the time. I got home, and there was a documentary about about E17 returning, and he was on it, and he was saying, they're one of the greatest acts of all time, and this and that, blah, blah. <laughs> and I was like, he was saying about E17 exactly what he'd been saying about me and Dan. And yeah. that made us go, let's leave the money on the table. This, you're absolutely right. Sometimes you've got to trust your gut. But I have to also be clear as well that there was a lot that, was taken off the table without us having a chance to make a decision. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to paint it that it was all there and, w- and we walked away. As I said, <laughs> there's so much in that industry where it's all painted as this thing and then it all goes away in a heartbeat. It's like, here's what we're going to offer you, here's what we're going to do. And then something happens, as I said, someone leaves or something changes mm. and that's now all off the table and it's gone. So there's a few that were like <laughs> that as, as well. I don't want to paint it as a complete uh, man of the people walked away from the biggest office in the world. There were some that just vanished. I mean, the best one was XL. And I feel comfortable talking about this because I love Richard, Richard Russell yeah. still. He, he produced a track on my solo record after me and Dan didn't end up signing with him. But they were kind of where we wanted to go because Adele was there, Jack who, who was there. It was before Adele had got huge, huge, but J- Jack was smashing it. Um, I got on well with Caius, who was there, who found a lot of these acts. And we went in for a meeting with Richard Russell and he said, look, I'm liking it. The problem I've got is the name. It's like Dan Lassac versus Scroobius Pip. 
Jack Pignate has got other members in his band, but it's Jack Pignate. Adele works with people, but it's Adele. It's like, we need it to be Scroobius Pip. Who, who else? How's, how else would it be that the producers at the start? And I just had a film-type moment of, of looking behind him and just pointing at the framed Eric B and Rakim poster <laughs> yeah. he had. I was like, there Eric B and Rakim. He was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Good, good point. <laughs> but that was one that, again, we chose... I'll explain it to Dan. Yeah. It'll be fine. Or, or, or we chose to not agree to that. And again, it might have been that we agreed to making it Scroobius Pip and we wouldn't have got signed anyway. But we had a chat and I was like, look, no, it is... It's important that it's both of us. It's this. It's a band. I've done. I do my solo st- stuff as well. This isn't my solo stuff. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. So we chose that, and again, I don't think that is the reason we didn't get signed by XL. I think there was a lot of stuff going on, and I said there's a lot of labels talking and making to a lot of bands. And, yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of like offers out that never materialized. Yeah. And... But I said it was a great one to kind of be able to have that moment of. Oh going, yeah, yeah. saying that when there's Eric B and Rakim on the wall. Eric B was the producer. Barely even, <laughs> and Rakim was the rapper. There we go. But yeah, so like when you kind of released the last album was it two thousand and fourteen? Yeah, I the think last so. the last record came yeah. out, and then you were just like, right, biggest tour. Uh, see you later. Yeah, it, like it, it's a proper goodbye for music instead of like you know Alton John's four year tour. Yeah, or like you know all these artists that do the the farewell tour Completely. and it lasts for about ten years. Yeah, and it was really important to me, and it's annoyed. Dan every now and then because every now and then we'll get a huge offer and it's like I don't want to I, uh, our last ever gig was at Bestival which is run by the people at Sunday Best that's always felt like our home crowd it's like we've had some of our best ever gigs there everyone knew it was our last gig R- R- Rob the Bank introduced us who was the guy who signed us and did so much for us and we played in front of 10,000 or so people who all knew the words and sung along to everything why would I want that taken away as my last ever gig. Yeah. yeah. At the moment, that's my last ever gig, and that is beautiful. And shortly after that, we got offered some Freshers Tour ones, which are always a lot of money, but they're fucking horrible gigs. Yeah. They, you know, they're rough. <laughs> so why would I want that, that that taken away as my last ever gig? And it was key to me. Things change, though. Like, like yeah. uh, most, most artists will say it's the last gig, but they will come back at some yeah. point. It's taken me a few, like, going to a few mates' gigs, because of the label, I'll often go and do merch if I've got American acts over and stuff like that because I want to support them. I want to make it as as, as as positive a release as possible. But I realised that I was never into the standing on stage and having the attention and adoration. But what I was into was playing people the music I've worked really hard on. That was the excitement. And the fact is now, all the songs I've done, I've played loads. That excitement's kind of gone. So yeah. I, I feel... If I write any new music, then I'll be excited to do some gigs again. Yeah. It'll be this amazing thing. But as it was, I enjoyed pretty much every gig I ever did. I know I put 100% into them. I never got that kind of got bored of it. Or yeah, got... you're not just like show and, yeah, show and go. Exactly. So it kind of felt, right, I want to walk away now. And also, it means something to me to go into acting and know that I'm going into acting as a choice. Yeah. Not because things have dried up. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Things were, as said, as big as they'd ever been. And I kind of went, right, I'm done with but that th- for now. There's a certain era of, like, if you if something has dried up and isn't working for you and you move into a different field, that that perception of the failure of it not working out for you carries over onto the yeah. next thing. Yeah. And actually going out 
on a high and moving to the next one it means that you're coming in with this like almost positive aura so, which people I don't know what it is but people can smell it out and again it's completely in yourself as well yeah because there's things like the 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 fact is there's going to be people who think I drifted off the map after thou shalt always kill because that's there's going to be somebody who heard that and didn't hear anything else afterwards and that's fine it's, it's something I spoke to Kate Nash about because it's something that I'd seen her get rightfully annoyed about because there was an article being like do you I remember these that, yeah. people from the that was horrible the 2000s and Kate Nash was in there at that point she was just about to star in Glow on Netflix which is huge <laughs> she was touring as big venues as she's ever played yeah but it just wasn't pop anymore uh-huh. so you, you're you're always going to have that so it's, it's, so again I I do feel that ending on a high it's for you mm-hmm. not for anyone else because there's going to be so many people who don't know that I ended on a high. There's going to be so many people that assumed it just dried up. That was a novelty hit. That well, people people thing. don't do their research. Like, do, no. do you know what I mean? And not like not like if you did research on every single person like that, life would be very boring. Yeah, no, I was no going to say, well, why should they? That's yeah. exactly that's perfect because yeah. people get all annoyed and butter about it. But I'm like, of course you shouldn't know who I am <laughs> or what I'm doing now. One of my happened to Scroobius my, my favorite thing in the whole wide world is watching and watching or reading something and just saying to my missus, how old do you think? Such and such is yeah yeah I like that's that's my game. Yeah. It'll be like going, how old do you reckon Toadfish from Neighbours is? Brilliant. How old do you reckon Brilliant. Johnny Rotten is? Yeah, and then going and seeing who's nearest to the number. I love yeah, it. I don't I don't like knowing that stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I like going and finding it. Yeah, I've got a question right, and it with with music and spoken word and podcasts and acting. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got your like many feathers in your cap. Huh. How do you not burn out? Because like this is a, something I've sort of struggle with a couple of times a year because I do so many different things yeah. and you've got so many different things going on in your head and I'm sure there's a lot of freelancers and people who like work 9 to 5 as well working uh, listening to this right now and they're like how do you juggle so many things? Well, I genuinely think my work ethic and work schedule has, has saved my life numerous times rather than I mean it's got me close to breaking a few times too but more often it saved my life and part of the reason for that is, and this is a hell of a sentence to come, I'm not that into fun. <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to go out and party and get drunk anymore. I've done all that. It doesn't appeal to me at all. Yeah. So, and also, I've realised, <laughs> I've, I've realised in recent years that I think it's also partly due to having a stutter. I'm, I'm not that social at times. I enjoy seeing my mates, but equally, half the time I'm thinking, oh, when can I go home? And it was only in recent years when talking about my stutter with the BSA and with a few different cherry things I've done, it made me realise, oh, that's because that's the time I don't have to try and hold it down. Because mm. even though I'm used to it and I don't start that much, it's worked to not stutter. It's a constant subconscious thing where I'm holding it down and, and refraining it and sw- switching words out or starting with a bit of a uh, at the beginning of a word because I don't because then it smooths me on to a W or an M so uh, well does, you know, does, things does, like that does, so, that, does that like, leave you mentally tired at the end of the day yeah, if you've been out yeah like... I think it does I think it does and <clears> I think that's why I'm quite a a, a solo person mm. um, a lone person rather than lonely but I think lone if wolf. I didn't yeah exactly mm. but I think if I didn't have tons of projects that could be mentally challenging and damaging because it is to be left with your own own thoughts a lot is is 
a tough time for anyone in this I find, insane world that we're in. I like. I, I definitely struggle with time off. Yeah, because yeah. like I, I've got like a radio, like this book coming up, blah 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 blah. blah. Anyway, yeah. um, and. I had two weeks off over Christmas and the first week was quite good. I was going to the pub and I was like sort yeah. of lying about eating shit food. The second second week I was just sort of sitting there and because there was nothing to do, my anxiety went through the fucking roof. Mate, tell me about it. <laughs> I, I had exactly the same. That So just the night before New Year's, and I planned this because I've had a year like that before where yeah. it's been a rough one. Um, and I'm working on a book as well, always working on a million things. But I, I said to my missus, I was like, look, I need a week where you go and stay with a mate or something. Because my my, my, my missus lives up north, but was down for Christmas and was going away with some friends in the new year at some point. And I said, look, this next week, I need to just bury myself in writing because mm. it's that period where no one's going to reply to any of my work emails. So I'm not going to be able to do any other work and I will start to, uh, to lose it. I, w- I will have exactly that. Just I'll be climbing the walls. So... She gracefully and understandingly just went and, <laughs> and, and hung out, out with a mate, had great time. And I just had eight days of just losing myself in this book, just yeah. buried in it. And it was amazing because then at the end of that eight days, I could send it off to my publisher and not think about it for a while because uh-huh. it's a novel, so it's going to take a long time for them to read it and get feedback and all that. So it was beautiful to go, right, I've now done that. We're only a week into the year. I can now start on... All the other stuff. Did you take eight days to write a novel? I took two and a half years to write this book about the music industry. Well, let me give you this. That was eight days of the latest draft. I started it when I was 17. Wow, right, okay. Seven. So I've spent 20 years on it. And I don't talk about (laughs) that length of time too much because I think it's going to be a bad reflection of the quality. Yeah. I had this idea... At 16 or 17, and I thought, oh, it'll be a film. And then years later, nothing happened. And then I started to write it. And I got to a point t- two years ago where I finally finished a draft. And I, s- I sent it off to the publisher who was interested. And I wasn't ready to hear f- feedback at that point, I think. Because oh, I spent so long it. Yeah. So I got the feedback and I thought, cool, it's not worked. It's no good. I'm glad I've done it because I've actually finished it. The challenge, the fact it had been hanging over me for, for that long, I'd f- finished it. It's not going to work out. I've got a million other things I'm working on. And then a year later, the publisher hit, hit me up going, have you got an update on that? Because it's really good and we really liked it. Like I still rem- We still want to do it. And I was like, oh. You needed, see, yeah. you needed that time to, to sort of uh, figure it completely. all out. But yeah, it's a weird one. I said it wasn't an angry reaction to feedback. It was a completely at peace. It was like, cool, yeah. well, I finished it. And that's what counts. And I think that is key to mm. so much creativity is just... Doing it for the act of doing it, because that's important, because it lets you know that you can complete things, whether it be scripts I'm writing, songs, podcasts, ideas, all of these things. It's going, I can start a project and finish it. If that project never leaves my hard drive, I've learnt from doing it. The next one, I'm going to learn, I'm going to have learnt more, and I can come at it fresh, kind of thing. A year or so ago, I bumped into an ex of mine from three or four years before, and she, and she was talking about how I'd have these... I wouldn't tell her about this a particular thing that I was working on at that time. And she thought I was being really vague about it. And she thought I was hiding something. And I was like, what are you talking about? And then she reminded me. I was like, oh, yeah. And it was a film that I'd started making and hadn't finished. Mm-hmm. The reason I didn't talk about it was like, I don't want to talk about it until, until it's a thing. I don't want to be, oh, I'm making a film. I'm writing a novel. Yeah, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. It's like, until it's finished, I don't want to talk about it. And that... 
can be negative on a relationship because it feels as if you're doing all this secret. And we were, <laughs> oh, oh, we lived in different countries. So it's uh-huh. that, that kind of, it feels like I'm hiding stuff that I'm getting over. It's like, no, it's just because I didn't want to say I'm making a film when at the moment it's an idea and it's a concept and I we're guess just it's seeing a... what works. It's the same with castings. I go to, like, last year I'd say I had about 30 different castings and it's the first year I've not got a role. But I wouldn't tell anyone about the gigs I was going in for because... Until I've got it, it seems stupid. Yeah, to say, yeah, exactly. Oh, I, guess I, what I'm in for. I guess went, what I'm up for. I went for this. Do you get like uh, auditions for many beardless chaps? Because you've obviously got such an like iconic look. Mate, a, few, a couple of the roles I've gone in for, like there was a big Marvel one and a few other things, I would have had to get rid of my beard, and I'm dying to in 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 a role. I think it would be a really important thing for me. Yeah, to have credibility as an actor. But equally, I'm also aware that. I'm brand new to this and I plan to be here a long time. So if I'm getting roles that I don't deserve yet in m- m- medieval stuff and Victorian mm. stuff, because I've got a big beard, then so I'll, be I'll happily go with that. Yeah. Yeah. But like, it, it, it's a bit of a, it, it's a, it's a calling card. You've had that beard, that beard yeah. for such a long time. It's like nobody, you, Owen Wilson wouldn't go get a nose job. Do you know what well, I mean? That's it. It's why I also think it's, and again, not that I'm claiming I'm a big Paul in any way, but I think, Easy example to bring it it back kind of full circle. Uh, when I released Introduction on my solo record, it was the first solo s- v- v- video I was doing on my label that was a proper label now, and I was having a proper release. And me and Dan had, bl- had blown up and had top 40 songs, and I thought, right, I've got 100 quid to spend on this music video. How can I get everyone to watch it? And the easiest thing to came in my, come to mind was I cut my beard off in it. So I did that in the video. I cut my beard, I, sh- I shaved my head, and I knew that that would make all the Lasak versus Pit fans at least give it a look. Yeah, because yeah. word gets, he cuts his beard off in the in the in the video. Then it happened that it turned out to be a, one of the best tracks I've I've written. I had Travis Barker on drums. It was Danny Lonna from Nine Inch Nails had produced it. So it, but the key there was going right. I've got hundred quid. How can I get people over here with hundred quid? It's amazing. Like you made a music video for a hundred quid when you've got Travis Barker on the track, isn't yeah, it? Like that's mind blowing. But that's the way it should be done. Yeah. It was again, it was that fake it. It was making them believe <laughs> they're working with someone on their level. I'm like, don't tell them that I'm pretty much nobody. <laughs> but I guess that's the, the the sort of thing I'm taking away from this conversation with both of us is faking it into existence and yeah. it, and then just doing your damnness to make it work afterwards. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the uh, time to get into this very warm a sweaty room up in Kensington which I didn't even offer you any water either. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure the only painful part has been hearing my old early music that's the bit it's been the most uncomfortable Scooby's Pip thank you very much thank you hey it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out Quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 